One of the lyrical phrases in the choir song caught my attention this morning in a different way than I had thought before. It, it, uh, the phrase was something to the effect of everlasting songs of thanksgiving will be given to God. And I thought about that, you know. Um, when we get to heaven, we will want to thank God and thank God and thank God and thank God. We won't be able to thank Him enough. It will just overwhelm us of all that He's done for us and what, he has, what is set before us for all of eternity. And I'm convinced that we will just be um, characterized as, as beings of thanksgiving for all eternity. And um, it seems to me, therefore, that we should have a sense of that now, and I think we do, and we should work um, diligently to praise Him with thanksgivings now uh, that we might be ready for all of eternity when we think about what God has done for us. <clears throat> well, that was a, a wrap for the choir for the season, and uh, I've, I am so grateful, Steve and choir, for your uh, prompting us to worship, for worshiping yourselves and being a worshiping community, and uh, the, the service that you uh, provide to God's people to prompt us to thank the Lord and to praise Him and to worship Him. What a beautiful song that was by the choir this morning that really moved our hearts to, to glory. And, and so uh, thanks, thanks uh, choir, for, for, you know, the, the Word of God, what we've learned in Nehemiah is that the Lord Himself uh, centers out singers for special recognition. And therefore, I think we ought to as well if the Word of God does that. So thanks, choir. I mean, we really appreciate um, your ministry. And our, all of our, our worship teams and our musicians and, and all who, um, who are so vital to the full scope of worship of Calvary. Music obviously is just one facet of worship. We are to be worshiping people. We are living sacrifices, right? That means we, we are worshipers by lifestyle, by everything. But, um, and music is <clears throat> one part of that. <clears throat> I apologize, this is allergy season. Uh, for me, and I think some of you are suffering out there too. The last couple of days have been real fun, and I don't know what's going on. It smells nice out there, the orange blossoms and everything. I love this time of the year, but it gets weird and, um, for, for allergy people. So, um, you know, I was, I was thinking if Nehemiah uh, had of, uh, attempted or wanted to attempt to make his memoirs a bestseller and, and make himself sort of the quintessential hero of radical reform. He would have quit writing after chapter 12. At the end of 12, he would have put the pen down and said, that's a wrap. This is a great story, a great story of reform and revival and radical transformation. And uh, I look pretty good as a leader, so I'm going to put the pen down. The, you know, it would be like the credits would come up and, and that would be the end of it. And and I guess it could have extended to a few verses into chapter 13. But it could have been one of those things that we would be so content to say, and it ended happily ever after. We love stories like that. That's what we like to, we like to, uh, to notice. I, I mean, as you um, pay attention to chapter 12 and as it completes, you realize that, that they are dedicating the wall and rededicating themselves to, to purity and sanctification and to stewardship 
they have, uh, are, are providing for the ministry of God's work and, and uh, for service to the Lord and, and uh, complete separation from people who don't love the Lord and it would be influence, influencers negatively to their hearts. And, and so um, it says in verse 47, so in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed. It's one of those final statements. It's like the end of the story when you say, and so they lived happily ever after. And in the time of Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, all of Israel enjoyed peace and contentment and commitment and all into God. And the music swells and, and the credits are rolling and we're like, that was a great story. And then we encounter the fact that we're talking about a real story here. Below the surface of real life reform is a not so civil war over forward spiritual momentum. The great celebrations of dedication, celebrations like this Sunday where we come together and dedicate today to the Lord can be so quickly swept away tomorrow. And so, um, chapter 13 arrives in all of its ugliness, and we wish it would go away. And so I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe I should just stop the series at 12, because it would be a lot more fun. But at God had drawn me to bring Nehemiah to you, all of Nehemiah. And so I looked at this chapter and I realized I couldn't possibly do justice to it on one Sunday, although we had hoped to schedule to be finished the book this week. And so I'm going to bring to you this morning almost an extended introduction before we plunge into 13 on the 23rd, and then that should be a wrap. But let's not forget that our series has been called All In, Rebuilding the Walls of Neglected Faith. It would be a great tragedy if we arrive at the end of this vital, vital section of God's Word and nothing has changed, nothing different has happened in our lives. When we look at 13, we're going to realize that Nehemiah had uh, gone back to Susa, back to his old job as cupbearer for the king because he had promised to do that. You remember that at the very beginning he had this great vision of reform and, and the, uh, the king said, well, how long are you going to be gone? And he gave him a, an outline. He was gone 12 years. But he went back to Susa, to his old job. We don't know how long he went back. But chapter 13, at least starting at verse 4 and on, is a, uh, a, a recitation of his return and what he found. And he was passionately leading the people of God to be all in for God, to purify yourselves and commit yourselves to God. Commit yourselves to God on the Lord's day. Commit yourselves to God in stewardship and service and sanctification and all the important things that matter to God and will be good for your soul health. And for whatever reason, when he comes back, he realizes and encounters that, that nothing had really changed. 
They were just the same as they were before his leadership began. I don't know why that's the case. Although I know about my own life. The cost of all in is significant. And sometimes we take and we portion things out and put it on the chopping block and I'll give God this or I'll give God something, but I'm not sure I want to give God everything. I'm not sure I want to wrap all the things into my life. And so our lives begin to look like a cluttered computer desktop. And you know, the picture is the small picture there which always has the option to say, do you want to go to full screen? And the small screen, you know, is, oh, yeah, I'll give God church. I'll give God a little bit of my Sunday, and I'll give him some of my time. But I got all of these other cluttered things on the sidelines of my life, which are very important to me. And I'm not sure what will happen if I choose to go full screen because all of those are going to disappear or be pulled into the full screen. And I don't know if I want to take the cost on of that. If I keep this all in, how much is it going to cost me? Plus, there's the constant in our lives attack of Satan who tries to deform God's reform program in our lives. It's not enough that we have our own malaise. It's the attack and the constant, relentless pressure. And sometimes he takes a, a, a reform series, a, a revival series, and... And he, wants, he deforms it in a way that, that pushes us back to maybe ludicrous legalism again. And so we start to try and please God by our external behavior, but it's not true of the inside of us. And we hope that if we make some sort of physical strength changes that we'll be right with God. And Satan's fine with us trying to do that. Or he pushes us in the opposite direction to reckless freedom. Go ahead, do whatever you want. God will be fine with it. Soon, the great potential for spiritual reform in our lives hits a speed wobble. And chapter 13 is that speed wobble. Right on the heels of a great celebration of dedication, it's followed up by spiritual disintegration and deformity. So my question to you as we wind down this series is this. Are you going to go all in, full screen with God? Because that's what this series pushes you to. That's what this book of the Bible pushes toward. I follow that up with another question. We've been all this way in the journey. Has anything changed in your life? Anything at all? I mean, this is about reform. This is about revival. We are getting to the last opportunity to take God's word seriously in this book. 
So if your Bibles are open, would you please look with me at Nehemiah chapter 13. I want to start reading at verse 4. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, that enemy of God. And he had provided him, get this, with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and oil into the storerooms. I put Shal Shalemiah the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Metelananiah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services." In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also. O oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashab, the high priest was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. So I purified the priests and Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor. Oh, my God. Wow, this is the word of God. Father, I pray this morning that you would liberate our hearts from distraction, from preconceived opinions and notions, and that our hearts would be open and responsive to the Holy Spirit of God. I pray, Father, that we would take your word seriously. I pray, God, as we um, finalize this word to your people in these next couple of weeks, that you would firmly impress upon our hearts the urgency of the hour, the need of our hearts, the cry for revival and reform, that our church, our lives, our families, our city, our region, our country, our world might be shaken for Christ. I pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. I believe with my heart that it has to start in our hearts, it has to start in our lives, it has to start in our church. Why not our church? Why aren't we the church that would take God's word seriously and see the book of Acts come alive and move its way into our city and into our region? And so I want to share with you this morning just an outline, an outline introduction to the, uh, the, the real meat of the issue that we're going to look at in a, in a couple of weeks. I think we need the preparation of heart. I think we need the preparation of our souls. I think you need time to pray and to consider. I think we need time as a community to, to, to seriously look at the things of God and count the cost. Jesus said, who is the one who would go and build a tower and not count the cost of what it is and, and then possibly not build it, not finish it? And so we are the kind of people who must count the cost and look at what God has for us. And I want to point out to you that just three things this morning, very briefly, three ideas that I think are imperative to us that come out of the, the, the idea of this text. Reform will be deformed unless certain values are settled in your life. And I want to share three of those values. Uh, the road to reform, um, well, let me just say this. Your faithfulness cannot be dependent on mountaintop moments alone, but in fact need internal spiritual combustion. This chapter 13 follows on the heels of a momentous uh, uh, occasion, a great mountaintop experience 
the dedication of the walls, the great work that God had done, the great reform work that God had been doing in lives. And I can tell you that the road to reform is littered with casualties of those addicted to hype. Your faith cannot depend upon mountaintop moments alone. Far too many people rely on, uh, on, external, on the uh, external energy of other people. Uh, far too many people are converted to a pastor or to a church or to a type or style of worship or um, rather than Christ. In fact, when Nehemiah goes home or goes back to his job, the people there, the vacuum of his energy and strength and leadership ends up resulting in them going back to their old ways. Our faithfulness to God, our belief, our faith, our commitment, our all-in cannot have to depend on mountaintop moments to be sustained. Can I make this strong point to each of us? Because some of us have learned or, or, or over habitual years to try and practice the idea that if I can stumble my way to Sunday, I can, I can get re-energized and rejuiced and, and, and refueled and re-octaned. And, and if, it's, if it's the right church and the right worship and I like the church and I like the pastor and I like what he had to say, my faith will survive for another week. Well, it might Unless you get a phone call to go to Sick Kids Hospital. Far too many people are codependent on circumstances for their faith. In Ezekiel, you know, um, the prophet there was so distressed by the, the way the people were treating the teachings of God as entertainment. In Ezekiel chapter 33, Ezekiel writes this in verse 30. As for you, son of man, or God, God speaks through the prophet. As for you, son of man, your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, Come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. So they're acknowledging where the word has come from. My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to listen to your words. But they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Without settled discipline, hard, hard disciplines in your life and accountability, 
spiritual progress will be minimal. Because you cannot maintain spiritual vigor with emotional fire alone. You must be internally invested in the truth and have God internally invested in you through His Holy Spirit. That's what true Christianity is. Sustaining and developing a, a fullness of passion for God is a, is a real life ex experience of the hills and thrills, the roller coaster of life. You know, we encounter the big exciting realities of Acts in AD 40 to AD 50, but it isn't too long until the realities of Revelation show up in 90 AD. In, in Acts, the thousands of people are coming to Christ and they're sharing with each other and they're meeting together and they're disciplining themselves with the Word of God and challenging each other and being accountable. And by, uh, by the book of Revelation, Jesus is saying of the church, you've lost your first love. And by A.D. 60 in the epistles, the, 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 the epistles are written in, in correction of the things doctrinally that have got out of, out, of, out of whack. Paul writes, what happened to grace? What happened to your faith? Beware that you are not living on emotional junk food and not really internally invested in this thing. Israel decided to go back on everything that they had bound themselves to at the Lord's table. They promised. They promised, and by way of bringing even curses upon their family, they promised to remember to commit themselves to the Lord's, to, to the Sabbath, to the Lord's day. They promised to make sure that they were committed to tithes. They promised the Lord that they would not intermarry with those who would steal their hearts away from God. And they promised to take the, the, the temple seriously. You all heard what we read this morning. These were the people who made those promises to God. And it wasn't as if they had forgotten because Nehemiah went away and there was nobody teaching them. God had raised up contemporaneously Malachi the prophet. Read Malachi. He was preaching his heart out at this time. Telling them the same things that Nehemiah and Ezra had told. It wasn't that they weren't hearing the word of God. They were deciding not to do the Word of God. I don't know why. Did it get too costly when it came down to the real rubber hitting the road? I guess I should say when the chariot wheels hit the stones. I don't know. Was it too uncomfortable? Too inconvenient? Too painful? Too much commitment? What about you? What promises have you been making to the Lord over your life? Over these past days? Over this past season of this section of God's Word? What promises have you been making? And how have you been doing 
at following through. What could be if we don't do what God puts on our heart to do will be jeopardized. Possibly irreparably. When God puts it on your heart, when he moves your heart to do something based on his word and you fail to act upon the presence of God, the urging of God, There's a phrase in the scriptures back in the early part of the Bible, my spirit will not always tarry with men. There's a second um, issue I want to note here. A second value. You must not settle for a comfortable compromise. You are called to be contrasting alternatives. Romans 12, of a familiar verse to all of you, we've said it so many times through this text, we are called to be living sacrifices. What do you think a living sacrifice looks like? What do you think a living sacrifice lives like and acts like and thinks like? How do you think a living sacrifice participates with the Word of God? We are to be a completely contrasting alternative to the people who are lost. Let me ask you a question. When people look at your life and your lifestyle and your values, what do they see? Do they see a comfortable compromise in your life? Do, they see, do you look like lost people? Do you think like lost people? Do you live like lost people? When there's a gathering of us and a gathering of them, is it different? When you walk into a, a building, a and a secular place and there's a gathering of us and there's a gathering of them lost people would someone walking in off the street say there's something uniquely different about that group of people as opposed to that group of people or do we choose the comfortable compromise in our lives the easier way, the less costly way, the less committed way, the less passionate way. Our God is all in for us. I don't know how many more ways our musical people could have brought that to our awareness today. Our God is all in for us. Have you made a comfortable compromise with your faith? living for what you have and what you see alone a lot of Christians say I don't see that as faithless I just see that as realistic without faith it is impossible to please God you must believe that he is and a diligent rewarder of those who seek him those who live by faith are not living by sight, but living by trust in God. Have you made a comfortable compromise with the idea of loving your neighbor? 
Does loving people cut into your me time? Of course it does. People occupy gobs of time. And it would be fine, I suppose, if Jesus hadn't have said to us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body and to love your neighbor as yourself. If we had have invested in our neighbors, maybe our church would be like the church in Algeria today. If, just, if, if each of us just brought one neighbor to church, we'd fill the place up. Maybe we've made a comfortable compromise with our sin because God forgives. And He knows me. He knows what I'm like. And He'll forgive me. I mean, after all, I'm not a mass murderer. But then again, I'm no saint. And sometimes Christians are really comfortable living there. God's called us to be people who hate sin the way he hates sin. To purify ourselves, to commit ourselves to God. To present ourselves, what would a living sacrifice look like? Holy. Consecrated usable by God, blessable by God, that God could use us. He could tap us on the shoulder at any given moment and we're ready. We're ready for his mission. Maybe we've made a comfortable compromise with lifestyle. Are my values, are your values the values of his kingdom or of my own kingdom? What radical changes have you promised God? What excuses have you made for not keeping those promises? Everybody wants to be saved, you know. You say, well, I don't, I don't think, yeah, yeah, they all want to be saved. Salvation isn't the problem. Salvation isn't our issue. In terms of the gospel and getting the gospel out, salvation isn't the issue. It's not the problem. The problem is lordship. Nobody wants to be owned. They want to own themselves. That's the issue of salvation, and that's the issue in the Christian community. That's our, that's our problem. That's what we haven't demonstrated to people who are lost. We haven't demonstrated that we are owned by another, that he gave his life for us. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Savior, no, he's, he's Lord. And believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. And believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. Then we'll be saved. The two are indivisible. You can't have one without the other. The salvation and lordship are together. That's Christianity. That's true Christianity. That he is lord of my life. Master of my life. All in is, is the expectation. It's not novel. It's not, it's not for some special elite group of Christians. 
You know, once again, today I've put a modifier in front of Christianity. I'm calling it full-screen Christianity. I do that for my purposes and your purposes. But, but it's, it's, I feel like the Apostle Paul and Sam must be out of my mind to put a modifier in front of Christianity. As if there are other different kinds of Christianities. There's non-full-screen Christianity. No, there's only one kind of Christianity. It's where you actually acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Master of your life and Savior who went to the cross and died for you. That's Christianity. That's the full gospel. There's no comfortable compromise with that. We are called to be a complete contrast to the average lost person. There are desperate days when the seawater gets into the rescue ship. You will not be able to keep promises to God and keep the world too. Can't do it. Lord is the dividing line on real salvation. Can I share one more thing with you as we wrap this up for today's introduction? This is urgent. You and I must stop watching Christianity and adopt a mechanism that ensures personal growth and accountability. We have to go full screen. And that's not going to just happen by sitting in pews watching songs on the screen and watching people pray and watching some pastor preach. It's not going to happen for you. It's not enough. It's not even the starting point. It requires of our lives radical change. Listen, let me share with you what the goal is, what, what Paul, when he wrote to the Colossians and, and said, this is the deal. This is what we're after. This is the, the bare minimum goal. But it's also the maximum goal because there is only one goal. Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29. We proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone, notice this, Perfect in Christ. Yeah, you want to shake your head. God's standards are so up there. God's expectations for you are so astronomical. For good reason. He is calling us to what he intends to do in our lives. You're saying, I could be perfect in Christ... Uh, and, and by the way, there, it, it, did you notice it says to present some of the believers perfect in Christ? Present the odd one perfect in Christ? To present every single one, every one of you who calls the, on the name of the Lord, every one of you who names the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord is to be presented to Christ perfect in Christ. Now, let me just share a tiny bit of theology with you. If you are in Christ this morning, you are already positionally perfect in Christ. 
You're already there positionally. When you uh, came to know Christ, there was a transaction that took place. You received the righteousness of Christ, Romans chapter 1. So you are viewed by God as perfect in Christ. But there is an effort, there is a grace-driven energy, there is a commitment that is expected in light of your position. Because you have been given the position, Paul says, live up to it. It's like when you're hired for something, you're hired for a job, you're hired for a position. Positionally, you've been given it. But you've got to do it. You have to step up. You have to do that job. You have to work to, to make the position a reality. And so, the simple truth here is that Paul the Apostle is saying that we are to present, and this is the goal for Calvary, this is the goal for every church that claims to present all of you perfect in Christ Jesus to this end. He says, I labor, struggling with all Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in me. This isn't an easy thing. It's not a cakewalk. It's not a, it's not a relaxation thing. It's a diligent energetic, urgent reality in my life and in your life, in our church's life, in our leadership life, and we are pressing, pressing, pushing hard, 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 because this is the level with which Jesus Christ expects us to be. I was captivated by, um, I've just started reading uh, Chan's book on, called Multiply, because I have to, but it turns out to be a good book anyway. And I was reading, and I came upon this description that, Fran you know, Francis Chan, I wish I could speak like him right now because it's so much more dramatic the way he does it. I'm not, I'm not even going to try, but it, it, might, it might come across like that because when I read books, I hear guys' voices, and sometimes it happens to me. If this was Ravi Zacharias, I could do it for you, but it's not. Here's what he writes, yet somehow many have come to believe that a person can be a Christian without being like Christ, a follower who doesn't follow. How does that make any sense? Many people in the church have decided to take on the name of Christ and nothing else. This would be like Jesus walking up to those first disciples and saying, hey, would you guys mind identifying yourselves with me in some way? Don't worry. I don't actually care if you do anything I do or change your lifestyle at all. I'm just looking for people who are willing to say they believe in me and call themselves Christians. Seriously. He's making an incredible accurate observation of what we see so much in the reality of what's called Christianity. Do we really think that our Savior went to the cross just to give us a title? Christian? He's good with us just taking on his name? But no change is necessary. No obedience to his word is necessary. Can I mention to you that knowing God's word, and here's the deal, and it's a big one. Knowing God's word makes you accountable. Application makes you change. That simply means that the, when you do what God's word says, the Holy Spirit changes you. How are we going to present everybody complete in Christ? 
it will be to the degree that each of us decides to obey the word of God. That's how we're being transformed into Christ-likeness. When you treat it like a smorgasbord, I don't like that, I don't want that, I'm not going to do that, that costs too much, you are undercutting your journey to Christ-likeness. So application makes the change occur. But let me tell you something a little more extreme. And it is this. Revelation, in other words, knowing the Word of God without application, changing, leads only to judgment. So what should we do? Well, Nehemiah threatened people. He said, you, you do this again, I'm going to beat you up. He grabbed some people and pulled their hair out, slapped them around. We're like, what? God's man did that? I guess Nehemiah wasn't really nice. These are life and death matters. The reason Nehemiah got so extreme is because of the gravity of these issues. I'll hold back because I've got more to say to you a week from now, which will be far more extreme than this. Faith was on the line. Truth was on the line. We live in a culture that's enamored with, with uh, political correctness and niceness and all of that. We're talking about hell or heaven. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about matters of the heart that will matter for all of eternity. And time is gone. But that's okay. Because this is a two-parter. I just want to say to you this morning that um, there is no other option. than to go all in for God. I, I got a visual up there. Have we seen it yet? Go back one slide for me, please. No, no. What happened to my slide? It's malfunctioning. It doesn't matter. This tells the story. When you open up your screen, there we are. It gives you the option. You want to go full screen? Okay, roll it. <laughs> Poor kitty can't even see me. I'm too short. Give me, that, give me my next slide. There you go. The all-in reality is simply this. It's not a little bit of church, a little bit of time, little bit of money, a little bit of my Sunday. What we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus as Lord of your life is you take all of the stuff that's sort of on the side that you've separated out. You bring it all in under the authority of Jesus Christ. And you say to him, I'm all in. It's all in. That's where this book takes us. 
That's why Nehemiah could say to the Lord, remember me. Remember me, O God. He wasn't bragging. He wasn't looking to be remembered as a great leader. He was simply between himself and God making the point that God will either say to you, welcome home, my good and faithful servant, or he will say, away from me, you evildoer. That's the presentation. Our Father and our God, our hearts are always on the line. And Lord God, we have so many competing interests to distract us. I do pray as we now think about what has been presented from your word and as we sing a song of devotion, I pray, Father, that you will begin a concluding work of urgent reform in our lives that will carry us into a serious some serious time in your presence, putting our hearts on the line. Over these next couple of weeks, Lord, I pray, for Jesus' sake, amen. A powerful song. To sing that song is to give our hearts fully to God, that his will and his way we will give him in our sanctification, our service, our stewardship, our separation from those things that would steal our hearts away. That's what this journey's about. And all in is in return to be in the best possible place with God, to be where you need to be when all hell breaks loose in your life, when all kinds of trouble comes your way, you need to be there. Well, our hearts are, are grieved because Aurora was taken by the Lord. Um, so she's gone. We need to be in prayer for the family. I'm telling you, these are urgent matters. You understand? The matters of the heart the matters of our families, the matters of our church, the matters of life and death and eternity. So, as we prepare for the conclusion of this study, this is an important time for us as a church. One of our values is that we take God's word seriously. And God is holding us to that. He's testing us. He's testing you, he's testing me. Do you really take my word seriously? Because that's the place to be. Father, I pray this morning and thank you that you are God. I thank you that you know best. I thank you that we are your children and we trust you because you are the great God of heaven and earth. I pray that you would help us, all of our hearts, to be serious before you. Lord, give us, I pray that we would give over to you our lives. You are the one who bought us with the price. You are the one who made us. It is the most 
reasonable thing for us to do is to present ourselves as living sacrifices. I pray for the Bridesons, Pastor Ken as he ministers to our church family as we minister to one another. Lord, help us. Please help us. Help us to embrace what you have for us so that we can be strong when the winds of trouble come our way and that we can be rejoicing and joyful in the high points and that we can make a difference around us. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.